Sean Casey chasing devils at the State Department. Coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast in existence that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Just a reminder to our audience, next week we are interviewing Josephine Graef, fellow at the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies and specialist on on white Christian nationalism. Maximum Niebuhr. But today we have a couple of guests with us. One is an established friend of the pod who needs no introduction, Mr. Eli Valentin. Welcome, Eli. Thank you. Good to be here. So great to have you back. We had rave responses, by the way. I I had literally several people after our interview with you write me and say, that was my favorite interview. So, well done, oh, sir. Oh my lord. Oh, we will <laughs> we will have we will have a, we we will have a new favorite after after today. Okay, good. <laughs> I will say that. That that's a prophecy. <laughs> that my Pentecostal sensibilities are coming out. So. <laughs> All right, so now the main event are uh, a fellow we've been extremely excited um to speak to. Mr. Sean Casey. Now, Aaron and I are both from Cincinnati, so we have to make this distinction. This is not Sean Casey, the baseball player, okay? They call that guy the mayor here in Cincinnati. No, this guy we're interviewing is actually much cooler. Uh, Sean is the former director of the U.S. State Department's Office of Religion and Global Affairs. He served under Secretary John Kerry in the Obama administration administration. Actually, Secretary Kerry wrote the foreword for Sean's book that we're going to be discussing today. Sean has a vast background with so much academic and real-world experience. He's currently the director of the Berkeley Center and professor of the practice at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Sean, such an honor to have you on with us. Welcome. It's great to be with you. I'm happy to shoot as many hours as I can talking about neighbors, so this is going to be great fun. Thank you. Hours, plural. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes me even more excited. Now, for our audience, we each have read Sean's newly released book and we have prepared questions. So the way this will work, I'll ask the first question and we'll just kind of go around until we're about an hour, maybe hours. And then, you know, we'll see where this goes. But the book is called Chasing the Devil at Foggy Bottom, The Future of Religion in American Diplomacy. Foggy Bottom, we can assume, is a reference to the Truman Building in D.C., where the State Department is centralized. So Chasing the Devil in the State Department is quite the provocative title, and the book doesn't disappoint. Now, for our audience, I'll try to give just a concise, probably oversimplified thesis for what I think is going on in the book, just to kind of get our bearings on the, in this discussion. And I want to I want to see what Sean might, might add to this. But essentially what I gather is this book is about taking religion seriously in the State Department and by extension politics. And this isn't just some starry-eyed idealism for toleration and peace and love and all that, but this has very real-world effects where 
had we understood various global and regional religions more clearly in the past or on a diplomatic level, extremely costly and harmful decisions could have been mitigated or altogether averted. Would you say that that's a fair description, John? Absolutely. That's that's dead on. Against that background, you have to take the historical approach of the United States with respect to religion. And it's either been inept, it's non-existent, or it's been reticent, or it's been poorly done. So the, the record um, is really quite quite traumatic there. And I have a whole chapter in the book talking about the Iraq War. It's kind of the classic example of, of I, I think it's the worst U.S. foreign policy failure since Vietnam. And the uh, cascading effects will be with our children and our grandchildren. Uh, so... And I, I make the argument that at many points along the way, before the war, in the early days, and then during the prosecution of the war, the willful ignorance of lived religion on the part of the Bush administration with respect to Iraq kept those cascading horrible things uh, rolling so that we will have spent $8 trillion by 2030 uh, on the two wars, the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. And it's my argument and I, I do this to some length early in the book, that just the basic knowledge of, of religious dynamics on the ground and the religious, uh, diverse religious communities there would have led to completely different outcomes if there had been experts at the table uh, who had gotten an honest hearing, but, but that was not to be. So that, I begin with that. And then you know, the more interesting question is, well, how do you do this work? If we've done it poorly or we haven't done it at all, the harder question is, how do you do it? Uh, in a more sophisticated way. And that's what the bulk of the book is about. It's interesting how we have to keep relearning this lesson on empathy, just in general. Um, I, there's a great documentary called Fog of War that is yeah. about uh, Robert McNamara before he passed. And and I remember distinctly this moment where he's kind of talking about the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. And at first he says, you know, we lucked out, you know, we we just got really lucky. But then you get down to it and he actually said, you know, what what really saved us was our ability to empathize from the position of Russia, to be able to see things from their perspective is what ultimately allowed, you know, allowed us to to escape that that uh, that problem we had uh, that Russia had got themselves into. And but this you're kind of opening this up and exploring this from a religious standpoint. What blind spots do we have? Because foreign policy since the Cold War and throughout the Cold War has largely been dictated by kind of a cold realism of just kind of assessing power, you know, and uh, it seems like, you know, that calculated formulaic way of viewing things is really missing out on something. And I think this really comes through in your book. Well, thank you. I mean, that and maybe that's one of the first Niebuhrian points to, to say is that, that Niebuhr was a Christian realist. He wasn't just a political realist in, in the uh, I think there's a huge divide among uh, readers of Niebuhr between those who, who have an appreciation of theology and religious studies and those who frankly come at it from a political science or international relations background. Uh, the IR people who are conservative, the neocons like Niebuhr because they think he he was muscular. He was a Christian who was willing to kill people. And that was right. good. <laughs> and it's a complete misunderstanding of Niebuhr. Uh, and they didn't see Niebuhr as a dialectical thinker. And he, you know, to, to cut God, if you will, out of the equation of your understanding of global politics is not to be realistic at all. In fact, it's to be myopic. It's to be blinded. Uh, 
Um, and, and so people who reflexively put him in the Morgenthau and the Kennan camps don't understand his thinking. And they have not read the second volume of The Nature and Destiny of Man. They skipped mm -hmm. over that portion of corpus. Um, and, and so historically, American diplomats have, have found religion to be soft and icky and complex. And, you know, there's that separation of church thing. So we don't do religion here. And then they quickly move on. And Iraq is the classic example of where if you say religion doesn't matter here, you're going to make profound and stupid and tragic and costly mistakes. And here we are. Next week will be the 20th anniversary of the beginning of our invasion. And we may get to this by the end of our conversations today. But, but today, the U.S. foreign policy establishment is as weak and as blind on religion as it was when we invaded Iraq 20 years ago, uh, which to me is part of the tragedy of where we are at this point in time. Interesting. Yeah. So um, I, I always ask the question, you know, um, we obviously know there's a connection to Niebuhr here to your book, but there's there was a there's a specific story that I've been a uh, question I've been waiting to ask you since uh, January, January 6th, strangely enough. And that that is that there was a post by uh, uh, John Schm Schmaltzbauer, I think that's how you say his name. Yes. And, yeah. and he posted a picture of your, your book at the Niebuhr family uh, graveside. And so I, I'm imagining there's more of a connection to Niebuhr than super apparent, like like directly apparent in the book. And so I was wondering, you know, uh, what's the backstory to that post? And then maybe what's the what's the background to like why Niebuhr? And we sh we should also say that I think it's probably what all of us did when we, as soon as we got the book is we went to the index to see how many times you mentioned Niebuhr, and it wasn't that many. So right, right, right. Well, I mean, I, in, in my own theological and political training, I'm very eclectic. And um, I, I studied with a lot of people who were heavily influenced either by Reinhold or H. Richard or both. Uh, so if you look at kind of my family tree, uh, I studied, I first read Niebuhr with Preston Williams, the African-American ethicist uh, at Harvard Divinity School. And we read Moral Man and Immoral Society together. And gosh, this was back in the the early 80s. And I was mesmerized. I, I've never found the a theological voice uh, assessing uh, global politics uh, through, through the lens of, of theology. And I had been looking for, for that. And so I was immediately galvanized by that. But at the same time, the, the good news about at least where I was trained is I was heavily cautioned, never, never walk around with a, a single theological school emblazoned or tattooed on your forehead. Um, in fact, one of the people who, who drilled that into me was Richard R. Niebuhr, Richard Reinhold Niebuhr, who is H. Richard's son and Reinhold's nephew. Uh, I was incredibly fortunate to be able to study with him at Harvard Divinity School. And he was like, there's no Harvard school. There's no Niebuhrian school. Just run as fast as you can away from those labels. But this was in a time, uh, you know, back in the, the early 80s and really through the end of the 20th century, where a lot of American theology was very much camp-based and it was sort of a, a crash test dummy theory of, of theology where you would take theologian A and theologian B and crush them together. And then you would look at the shards of glass and metal and you would, you would sort of pick out the fragments. Uh, and that was what doing theology meant. So, I, I, so that's to say, I, I've learned a tremendous amount from Reinhold Niebuhr, but he's one of many forces. But if, if you're interested in, in religion and global politics, you have to go through Niebuhr. You can't go around Niebuhr. So uh, he's not above reproach. He's not above criticism. Uh, and, and so I, 
you know, people say, are you a Niburian? Are you a Bardian? Are you a Harvard school? Are you this or that? And I always say, you know, I'm, I'm a pacifist in the theological cultural wars. I'm not, I'm not a member of any particular <laughs> party. Um, and I, th I think if we move away from that kind of uh, sort of intramural view of theology, I think American theology will be the better for it in the long run. Now, I will say in, in this interim between when I was hired and before they rolled out, rolled out or announced my office, there was like a four or five week period there. And I became good friends uh, with David McCain, who was the head of the Office of Policy Planning and a historian in his own right. And I told him one time, I said, David, you know, uh, Kennan brought Reinhold Niebuhr in. So George Kennan was his predecessor, right, head of the Office of Policy Planning. And McCain stopped me. He said, Sean, I'll make you a deal. He said, I will never compare you to Reinhold Niebuhr if you promise never to compare me to George Kennan. So, <laughs> uh, but I did refer to, to Niebuhr in my opening remarks at the rollout event where I, I quoted a passage from The Irony of American History. And I think one of Niebuhr's great strengths as a political and theological analyst was he solved the pivots in American and global history. You know, he saw that after World War I with his break with pacifism, but he also saw it in World War II, particularly in the post-war years, that he, he saw the two options America was staring at were on one hand isolationism, where our work here is done, we've saved the world, we're gonna go now or we're going to become really true imperialists and we're going to dominate the world and we're going to let our hubris uh, fuel our actions. And, and Niebuhr said neither one of those poles are acceptable. Now, there's a great space in between the two poles of that dialectic, but I thought there at the beginning of Obama's second term, that was an apt piece of advice that we, we could take the hubris route, which we had, we had been on, at least during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and, and uh, Obama wanted to get us out. Uh, so we were, were torn then also with saying, okay, we, we're, we're going to get out of Iraq, we're going to get out of Afghanistan, and we're no longer going to have any foreign entanglements. And so I thought that Niburian framework was wise, and, and I quoted that. Now, I think there were three people in the audience who caught the reference, but that was okay. <laughs> so Niebuhr, Niebuhr's been there. I, I, I'm reluctant to say I'm a Niburian. I've learned much from him, um, but there's much that needs to be modified as well, and perhaps we can get into the, the details there. But I, I do think that um, the notion that he was a liberal critic of liberalism I think is a proper framing for his thought. And a lot of particularly neocons miss that today. They see him as a banger. They see him as a strong muscular Christian who's willing to crack skulls. And I, I just think that's an absurd reading, but it popped up. Um, I've got a chapter of a yet to be published manuscript where I call it Kidnapping Niebuhr, where I talk a lot about the neocons, you know, like the Mark Tooleys and the Wilford McClays and others who want to who want to make Niebuhr a neocon. And I just, I think that's, that's absolutely misbegotten and, and just a fundamental misreading of, of Niebuhr's thought. We actually see some uh, neocon softening very recently. Um, gosh, uh, Max Boot just put out an article uh, saying that he was wrong, calls himself a realist now. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Um, and uh, conversion, but... yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but there was an interesting switch. And Tom Nichols, I think, uh, came out and said essentially the same thing. So there's a lot of people out there who are starting to kind of see the light. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think it probably has anything to do with Niebuhr. It's, 
Yeah. But uh, yeah. it's but well, uh, but, it, I mean, but it's an interesting change that happens to be happening right now. The forever wars have a way of disillusioning people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we thought true. they were going to be the solution, and, and you know some of us figured twenty years to war was probably a bad idea before it started. But that's that's another story. Yeah. The the the, the realist component, right, in international relations theory. Um, just just wondering if if you have a perspective on this be, because of the the uh, Russia Ukraine situation, John Mearsheimer who's a uh, probably the most recognized realist international relations theorist has been i guess quite provocative with his um perspective on on why this war is happening and i would i mean i would consider the mearsheimer types as a uh, somewhat of an offspring of the the classical realist right um, and I know, as you point out, we have to make a distinction of where, where Niebuhr lies here. Right. Um, but I think about Hans Morgenthau, who's considered right, uh, right the father of many of these realist thinkers today. But yet Morgenthau said that Niebuhr was the father to them all. So, so I'm just wondering, wh- where do you see Niebuhr fit in? In um, with the Mearsheimer types, um, I guess that's one. One part of the question. The second thing is, how do you see Niebuhr's thought? Or I, I'll put it this way. Is Niebuhr relevant when we think about what is happening today in, in global politics? So I guess that's a, a two-part question here. Sure. Okay. Well, you know, I, I, I think um, a lot of the IR theorists have done Niebuhr a, a disfavor because they, I, I think the place to start here is really with Robin Lovin's analysis of Niebuhr's realism. And he, he, he notes that Niebuhr is not a purely political realist because he's a, he's a moral realist, he's a Christian realist, which mitigate and, and modify any of his absorption of classic realist theory. Um, Niebuhr says their analysis doesn't go far enough. Simply looking at interest and great power uh, theory doesn't explain enough in what's going on in global politics. And to leave those other dynamics out is really to be unrealistic. So he's a critic of realism. But at the same time, I think he says, obviously, you know, he believes evil is real. He believes human beings and institutions are corrupted by base base motivations, and there is no perfect, perfect organization. You get two people together, and they're doing worse things than they do individually sometimes. Um, so I think he would look at Mearsheimer and say, this guy's a really pathetic uh, analyst. And, and I think we're, I mean not to be too cruel, but I, I think Mearsheimer is showing the failure of classical realism now because he, he wants to blame it on the West. He thinks somehow Putin is animated by uh, what's going on in NATO. And that's not even reading Putin at face value. If you read the Putin uh, fever dream speeches, there's always this piece, this this uh, critique. It's, it's over a millennium old about how the West is trying to de- dethrone and decenter a global orthodoxy and only Russia can restore that orthodox world and it's the decrepit uh, immoral West that's been on this obsessive path for, for centuries. Now that's absolutely false. That's a complete misreading of, of Western history and politics I think there. Um, and he, you know he's denied, I've seen uh, videos where Mirsheimer has denied that Putin's doing this as a sort of trying to restore this ancient Ruski Mir motif and restore a greater Russian orthodoxy. And it's just, he's just flat out not reading 
and taking Putin at, at face value. So I think we're seeing kind of what a threadbare realism really leads to today, that it, it's not able to understand and interpret the dynamics of why Russia would invade Ukraine now twice in the last uh, decade or so. Uh, so when you see Niebuhr grouped with this group of hard, hard-nosed uh, IR theorists, the realist, if you will, I think that's a that's a mislocation. It's a uh, it's a shoring back, if you will, what Niebuhr really stood for and what he believed. Now the question is: Is, is Niebuhr relevant today? And if so, how? I mean, we, we could talk for hours on that. Uh, you know, I think Niebuhr would have not been surprised that when Putin said he was going to try to rebuild Greater Russia, he he went and did it. You know, he invaded, uh, and so many people in the West are find what Putin did inexplicable. And yet, uh, I think Niebuhr would say Christian realists uh, should be the least surprised when, when authoritarian governments do this. Uh, I think he was a great reader of authoritarians of his era, but he did not offer a sort of balance of power option that we always have to respond from the West with force against the use of force. We have to think uh, in a much larger moral framework. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think you know, it's always hard. People want to invoke Niebuhr is, is their guy and supporting their position. Um, and so I'm, I'm not going to say Niebuhr would have, uh, you know, would have approved of the Biden administration's uh, uh, response to the invasion. I think you can make a, a more modest set of arguments to say there's a Niebuhrian position to justify the West's response in meeting uh, the invasion with uh, proportional force in trying very hard not to expand into an offensive war against Russia, but to keep the focus on repelling back to the status quo ante. That seems to me to, to be very prudent. So sure, you know, and this is part of the Basevich critique is that I, I think he overstates it, but he says, you know, Niebuhr offers a bit of a, a stance in international politics, but he doesn't always give you a, a very very thick policy prescriptions about, okay, here, here are the tactics that you should should deploy. And that's not necessarily criticism in my book. I think there's some strengths to having a, a sort of framework, a moral political framework out of which you operate that then leads to proximate choices, uh, prudential choices in, in the specifics of a, of a case that you can, you can argue it in, in a number of different ways about what the tactical uh, response should be. So yeah, I, I think Niebuhr is, is corralled and marginalized by putting him in this panoply of great political realist thinkers and leaving him there and not understanding the moral critique that he brings and the theological critique he brings. Um, but at the same time, <clears throat> excuse me, we saw this in, in the, the Iraq war where right-wingers and neocons all stampeded to Niebuhr thinking he would justify the invasion. And I just think that's that's just laughably wrong and, and impossible to, to justify. But, you know, I, I found, well, I debated a lot of those people. You know, I, I debated Jean Bethielstein. I debated uh, uh, George Weigel. Uh, I debated Richard Land in particular. And all of those people, some way or another, you know, uh, sort of saluted Niebuhr as one of their patron saints for their arguments. And I, I just think they're all sort of in intellectual witness protection right now if they're still alive. <laughs> I've always said that you could probably be a, a Niburian bank robber. Um, and, yeah. you know, just anybody can tag that on. People could even like start a podcast on them who could be nuts. Yeah. Right. Well, the jury's still out on you guys. So, you know, I. <laughs> 
Well, I know I'm insane. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> you got next, Aaron. Uh, I, I mean, just I just want to say, Sean, it's a pleasure to have you. And the communication of your ideas is so clear. I'm just kind of I'm overwhelmed a bit, but I, I appreciate you taking the time. That's my um, pleasure. So uh the I guess the first question is um, you know, you say that despite the caricature during the 20, 2004 election, um, Secretary Kerry was a much more complicated man when it came when it comes to religion. Um, he understood religion almost like a language in need of interpretation by an expert. Um, so can you tell us more about that late night conversation you had with then Secretary Kerry back in 2005? Yeah, so I, I begin the book really with this story of where you know I had was introduced to Kerry in early 2005, just after he had lost the presidential race in 2004, uh, by Mike McCurry, who was a mutual friend. McCurry worked for Kerry, and, and McCurry was on the board of governors of Wesley Theological Seminary, where, where I was teaching at the time. And you, know, you may remember the story, Kerry was caricatured by a couple of then archbishops in the Catholic Church as not being a real Catholic, and a lot of conservative Catholic media figures uh, picked up on that. And the, the Kerry brain trust said, don't respond. You'll just, you'll just feed the, the beast there if you, you, uh, if you uh, respond. And of course, that was a failure because the Bush people then drew a caricature and said, yeah, he's a phony Catholic. He's not real. Um, and uh, Kerry <laughs> figured out the hard way that that's not a good response when you get caricatured about your basic uh, philosophical and theological makeup as a politician. You can't recover from that in the short run. And he didn't. And so then the question became, well, how how should he uh, talk in public life about how his faith and theology shapes his political philosophy? And that's where I came in. I was introduced, and we we had a couple of, of conversations with a, a, you know a coterie of people. But the conversation I relate is really the first time he and I sat down alone. And I, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, there I was. I was just a stinking assistant professor of Christian ethics in, in a modest uh, United Methodist seminary. And I'm sitting across from the guy who came very close to being the next president of the United States. Um, and he he pulled out his diary and read to me a diary entry from when he was at the 24, 25, the night uh, that he had learned that his uh, one of his best friends from Yale had died uh, in, in a firefight where he was trying to recover some of his fallen soldiers from the Tet Offensive. And this just, a, it's, I mean, I want to go into too many details, but you, you can read the account in the book. It's just a, a, a scream to God uh, trying to help him make sense of, of war and, and why he would lose a, a friend like that uh, so early in life. And then I began to realize, you know, the, the, this guy's been wrestling with some basic theological questions since his early 20s. And by his own admission, Kerry wandered around in the theological wilderness for some time before he came back to the Catholic Church. Um, and so that was just a signal to me that this guy's grasp of religion is much more complicated than I've ever been led to believe. And all I knew really was what one got from the, the political press covering the, the election. But I think that was where a relationship of trust was born. And that, that was in 2005. Then you, you fast forward to 2013 and, you know, Kerry at that point obviously has decades under his belt, is a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he's now Secretary of State. And when he found out he had the legal authority to launch a religion advisory office, he turned to his chief of staff, who I'd also known from 2005, back on the Senate staff. And he said, call Sean and see if you can twist his arm to come in 
um, and launched this office. And I think the, the main point from the book is that Kerry had an intuition that American diplomacy had failed or made bad decisions many times over the intervening years because of its reticence or its willful ignorance of religious dynamics around the world. And he asked me to come in and build an office that would bring a more sophisticated set of eyes uh, to the role religion played in a variety of contexts and in a variety of issues. Did he think it was the same issue with the Vietnam conflict as well, that there was a lack of in- inspection uh, of religious consciousness in that conflict? Oh, I mean, he 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 probably has opinions about the role of the Catholic Church and the yeah. understanding of the Buddhist community there. But that was, ne- we ne- you know, when you're working in the State Department, you don't have these salon discussions. Like, well, what if you really started the Vietnam War? <laughs> it's not like the West Wing. Like <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, okay. And, and, you know, it, I, I have a lot of people who just thought, like, well, if, you know, in fact, some, some, I mean, I, forgive me if it was one of the four of you. Somebody put it up a piece after I was named, John Kerry needs to take my seminar on religion and international religion. <laughs> it's not us. <laughs> and and I, I was like, nah, that's, that's <laughs> I did a podcast once with a, with a professor at a university I will not name. And I, I, I said, the State Department is not a rolling graduate seminar. And he got really, really put off because it was like, no, 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 my seminar can help. And I was just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> no, no, your seminar cannot help. But it, it's it's not, yeah. So it's not the West Wing people sitting around the fireplace up in the, the presidential res- you know, residence. I mean, now what really? Come on, what are our best options here in North Korea? You know? <laughs> yeah. Those are some of the best scenes, though, of Jed Bartlett <laughs> with the priest talking over capital punishment. But anyway, whatever. Um, so now there were several ex- experiences that kind of took you down this path. One was um, John Kerry. I, I think uh, Madeleine Albright, you mentioned her kind of piece on, on her way out, um, uh, discussing the, the importance of religion and foreign uh, policy. But on a personal level, you told a fantastic story uh about growing up in a church of christ in western kentucky and as you moved into the 60s you experienced something you later called diplomacy 101 um can you unpack this experience for our audience a little bit and by the way aaron and i both have history with the restoration movement so when you brought up alexander campbell and common sense realism and all that we were we were tracking right along with that Well, I, I have often said, not so much out loud, but to the people close at hand, that, you know, being a, you know, I, I was a, a clergy person for 15, 16 years in the Churches of Christ. That was excellent training for becoming an international diplomat. Wow, amazing. Of the petty fights and the conflicts and the egos and the mistakes, yeah. you know. Uh, so I, I do have this autobiographical chapter, which I really wrestled with because, Nobody in graduate school said, you know, when you write a book, put yourself in the middle of it. That, that'll really help your standing in the guild. <laughs> but, but what I wanted to say was, when it comes to religion, A, there are very few people who studied religion formally who work in the diplomatic apparatus. And B, when people feel liberated to talk about religion in the State Department, if they haven't got the training, they often analogize off their, their sort of angst-ridden teenage years back in the 60s or something. And, and, and so now people say, well, you, you did talk about those years in your own life. 
but what I tried to make the point was having grown up in this, this, I mean, to be honest, a very obscure, tiny corner of American Christianity in the middle and late 20th century, uh, despite the fact some of us thought we were on the cutting edge of whatever was going on in the world. Um, you, you do see things where you grow up in kind of a hothouse, sectarian, cloistered environment religiously. You become attuned to how small circles and small quirks can have huge implications that, that to the untrained eye, these fly over your head. And so all I was saying was that the, the combination, I think, of my peculiar religious upbringing, but also my, my religious studies training, it was that combination that allowed me to walk in to a lot of context with religious communities and religious actors that would have completely befuddled the average American diplomat because they would not have been attuned to to some of the nuances. You gave one great example of this, and I can relate. I've known people like this, um, where you said that I think it was your preacher would rather be a communist than a Catholic. Unbelievable. Like that's something that, you know, you can only know by getting into that you know, little dogmatic sect, yes. you know, with their, that very particular culture driven by this very particular religious, you know, uh, non-denominational denomination. Yeah, and so the, the, the analog would be Putin talking in his speeches about uh, Vladimir the Great being baptized at the Dnieper River in the, the 10th century, and that's like the pivot of all human history. Right. Um, and you know, and I think American analysts are like, okay, you know, that's some speechwriter got his favorite ten paragraphs put in there. <laughs> no one could go to war over reclaiming the river with this Viking from the tenth century brought orthodoxy to Amazing. Russia. Right? Nobody would rationally would, would go to war trying to re reset that claim. Yeah, and yet I I was one of those people who said. Maybe he would invade Crimea. Maybe he would invade the Donbass region because he is on some kind of religious tinged mission. And, and that was kind of staggering to a lot of people that that couldn't possibly be part of the motivation. Um, so, you know, you know, it, it's like the old saying, when somebody tells you what they're doing, maybe you should listen and believe them that they're telling you why they're doing what they're doing. And, mm -hmm. and in this case, uh, that kind of religiously tinged fever dream is, is a common common trope in, in these Putin speeches. Because they're they're coming in with a whole narrative and background that is leveraging this one thought, th this one declaration they're going to do, while we might not take it seriously at all. Right. Like there's yeah. a lot of momentum pushing them in that direction. Well, but, but that's also, I mean, most Orthodox people don't believe that narrative. I mean, that's the other, yeah. it, it's, it's not... It's not if you're Orthodox, you have this peculiar view of, of Russia. Right. Um, there are some who do have that peculiar view, but the majority, I would say the majority of Orthodox around the world scratch their head too and say that this is not worth starting World War Three over. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just uh, I'm just jumping around the, the book because I was trying to find exactly make sure I knew, you know, where this quote is placed. But at one point you said um you were talking and you said on page 79, you say, and our theolo our traditional theological teachings, such as they were were no match for the conservative political winds. Race, poverty, and nuclear weapons buildups were not fit topics for church folk. Um, and I, I think that was in reference to your time going back into ministry, your uh, your foreign missions trip, as you called it, I think. Yeah, that, that was my time in, in Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm going to get mail on that one. <laughs> well, no, I just, I, 
I thought maybe, you know, maybe you're being sarcastic in that they're maybe you're serious, but um, from like a, from like a Niburian standpoint, he would have been like, absolutely not. You know what I mean? He, he would have been like, uh, like we got, we got to talk about these issues. Yeah. Um, I, I just wondered if you could expand on that a little bit. Just what, kind well, of what I have found, I have found an article Niebuhr wrote after visiting Mississippi in the 1930s. Uh, Niebuhr was on the board of the Delta Cooperative Farm. He was on the board of the Fellowship of Southern Churchmen. So he did a lot of anti-racism work, which is often overlooked today. And he was at a meeting in the Delta of Mississippi and was in a town just after a lynching had taken place. Now, he didn't see it. He didn't see the corpses hanging. Uh, but he writes about engaging the local Southern clergymen there. And it's clear he didn't win any hearts and minds in these discussions with the Southern clergy. And um, in fact, I, th I think this is, if I, if I have time and resources, this is something I want to write about. I think both the Niebuhr brothers were far more deeply involved in anti-racism work going back to the twenties uh, than they're often given credit for. And, and part of that is, you know, Niebuhr, Niebuhr really appears on the horizon in 1932 with Moral Man and Immoral Society. Uh, but prior to that, uh, going back to his days at Eden Seminary, now that we have, uh, you know, we have much more deeper historical work done on St. Louis and in the, in the role of race there, Walter Johnson's book um, really, I think, gives us a lot of tools to rethink the Niebuhr's work there, even before they got to Detroit or, or to New Haven, and of course, then Harlem later on. But yeah, so I, I think Niebuhr, Niebuhr says these, these are issues uh, that need to be named. Now, was he was he a perfect anti-racist? Absolutely not. It's, it's, this is not a, an attempt to somehow save the Niebuhr brothers from their own incipient racism. I mean, I, that would be a fool's errand. But I, I do think there's much more interesting work, much more biracial work that he did with people like Howard Thurman and Mordecai Wyatt. Um, oh, gosh, what the, the Howard president's last name. I'm blanking on that. Anyway, I think there's now some archival evidence to suggest that they were much more active. Uh, people forget that the last chapter of Social Sources of Denominationalism uh, is on the Black Church experience. And that book came out in September of 1929. And as far as I can tell, that's probably the first attempt by a major white American theologian to, to even begin to uh, apply scholarly lenses to what's going on in the Black Church. So uh, th they were they, they were people, both of them, who raised issues. Now, whether they gave us good answers or the best answers is, is an open question. But um, but I found it interesting to find this, this uh, article from Niebuhr talking about going to uh, the Delta, Mississippi in the 30s, 20s and 30s, trying to build institutions that uh, were, were biracial institutions. And uh, that's often not analyzed very deeply in sort of Niebuhr scholarship today. Um, but it, it drove me back. I mean, basically, I, the conclusion I came from my, with my after my two years in Mississippi was that my tradition did not have answers for the church's role in public life in, in the context of what I saw going on in Mississippi in 1983 and 84. Uh, but I, I realized I needed more than my master's degree. And, and this really, as I say in the book, what's animated my, my own life and scholarship has been this question of what are the political implications of religious belief and practice? And uh, that's true of my, my theological work, but that's also true of my diplomatic work. Well, I think the reason, the reason I brought that up is precisely that, is that me as a pastor in a, a rural 
you know, the only, just to give you context, we're, we're the only county on the western side of Washington that voted for Trump. Mm. So, you know, yeah, that's yeah. one example of like, uh, that's the context I'm in. And, um, but I, I have this, I, I find myself oftentimes kind of pondering and really thinking deeply about the fact that we don't really have the tools, right, about to to engage with some of these issues. And it's kind of, yeah, it's not a great feeling, not a great experience. Well, I related to that. I, I mean, just kind of, kind of go on a, a white Christian nationalism uh, es escapade here. That's the missing link at this point, at least, in, I think, in terms of our response to white Christian nationalism. We have political scientists who can tell us the history of populism. They can we have social scientists who give us the polls that say, you know, 5% more people believe in the sort of the uh, Proud Boys memes and, you know, the uh, QAnon memes than a year ago. And, and all that's fine and interesting. But no one is talking about the people who really feel the pressure are sitting in your chair right now. Uh, you know, Ruth Graham had this story about the, the Fort Smith, Arkansas pastor who uh, referred to Tom Hanks in a sermon and got accosted afterwards about pastor. We can't believe you're endorsing a known pedophile from the pulpit. Oh my, <laughs> oh man. And he ends up leaving that church. So, you know, if you're a pastor in these places and you've got a church of a hundred and you've got six of these people, they can make your life hell. And uh, back where I was preaching in the churches of Christ, you are beholden to a board of elders or deacons and one bad sermon means by the end of a, a bad lunch among the deacons it, after the sermon, you could be fired. Uh, and so who is who is equipping those pastors to think through this new set of issues? But how do you deal with this at the congregation level? The denominations are not doing it. The political scientists certainly aren't helping you. The sociologists of religion aren't helping you. So how, how do we begin... You know, the, there's all kinds of evidence that talks about the high percentage of Protestant pastors who've considered quitting in the last year. It's like in the 40 percent uh, range, uh, according to Pew. So that's what's missing now is how, how do we try to resource these pastors, not only to survive, but, but how to teach and to engage those people who have absolutely heretical, outrageous, historically unprecedented views of the relationship between the church and so-called liberal democracy. Well, and I, I found myself, you know, the quote that you, the, you, you tried to keep from saying over and over again was it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. That's what I find myself all the time. wanting to say to people, it's like, if I had an hour, I could work this out for you, but well, more complicated. But, so I, I think part of what's happened and this is just sort of a, a 50,000 foot view is that the so-called teaching office of the church, of the local church, is gone. You know, the, the number of, of American Christian adults who are in a Sunday school class, it, it, it's just, it's unthinkable uh, how little actual pedagogy goes on in Christian uh, congregations today for a million different reasons. But I think we're seeing it now where people don't know what to say when somebody says, well, you know, QAnon, Q just dropped this saying about so-and-so and such-and-such -and -such is going to happen here, here, and there. And our, some people are just mesmerized by this. Um, and so there's really a vulnerability now in so many Christian congregations to being poisoned by these various uh, allegedly theological voices uh, doubling down on right-wing uh, Republican Christianity uh, and it's killing, it's killing clergy and it's killing congregations. Oh, and I, I would just add, that's part of why I think we started this podcast, actually. Yes, yeah. we're being I, very yeah. self-referential in this, but I was going to say the same thing. That's 
yeah, we wanted to bring uh, Niebuhr's expertise in being able to craft very profound messages from scripture, especially in like Beyond Tragedy and things like this, to be able to to use scripture in ways that can reach people in the pews that can fight against a lot of these uh, uh, nationalist he, tendencies. He he engaged with nationalism. I mean, he he knew how to take on autocrats. He he knew their psyche. He knew their their constellation of pathologies. And frankly, I think this is where the theological guild has failed miserably. Is well, part of it is nobody nobody cares. I mean, you, you can't get an op-ed placed in the places he had op-eds placed because either those those outlets are gone or they, they become thoroughly uh, deaf to, to theological voices in ours. Or if they're hiring theological voices, they're hiring center-right theological voices. I mean, look at the New York Times editorial page today. I mean, who who there represents any kind of center left or, or left theological position on a regular basis? You go down the list, uh, and it's just non-existent. You you can't you can't get an an op-ed placed, but they've got regular columnists who come from the center right or further right mm -hmm. when it comes to theology. So we're in a really weird time in that respect. It's interesting you bring up the uh, the teaching element of churches of local churches um, because I kept thinking this throughout this whole book is. Your work kind of overlaps a bit with uh, Stephen Proth Prothero. H have you read or or heard of uh, Stephen? Yeah, Prothero? I know Stephen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he does. He's scholar at Brown University, but um, he has, I mean, just this really uh, powerful book. It's it, it's almost uh, makes you sick um, learning about some of these things. But just. Uh, couple of facts only 10 percent of teens in the u.s can name all five major religions um nearly two-thirds of americans believe that the bible holds the answers to all of or most of life's basic questions yet only half of americans can name even one of the four gospels and most cannot name the first book of the bible so th there's like the and i've actually noticed this i think the numbers bear this out statistically most Trumpers, like hardcore Trumpers, are evangelicals who don't attend church. I think it's something like only 17% will actually attend church regularly, which I just find fascinating. Yeah, you know, the, the Sam Perry and your Whitehead book shows that the more frequently you attend an evangelical church, the less likely you become to be a white Christian nationalist. So there there is kind of a, a, a pivot point where that begins to decline because they're actually listening <laughs> yeah and paying attention to to, to actually the, the text and the in the sermon so uh yeah and, and i think that's right i think the most the most ardent um ambassadors as they call them white christian nationalist ambassadors are not the most devout in terms of sort of traditional uh sociological markers of uh depth of commitment and such interesting yeah no i as you were mentioning that uh sean i could i, I think of um the the two Corinthians uh, pronunciation of of, the, of of Paul's letter, uh, which which goes to show right that uh, you know I think even even the term evangelical is more of a political reference than a theological one today. Yeah. Um. As, as we were chatting, just to pivot a, a little bit, and, and by the way, I appreciate the uh, biographic biographical biographical tone that you take. Um, Thank you. And of course, yeah, I've I've known uh, uh, of Sean's work for some time. Just a uh, a personal thing here. So my brother uh, Ben, he he knows Sean. They go back to their Harvard Divinity days, and, no, and in, 
<laughs> if I'm not mistaken, um, I think Ben told me you were one of his TAs. That's how far back they go. I mean, that's not so far back, but but it, it, it's it's further back than you and I, Sean. But uh, but and and we've appreciated your work um so much. You were, I think, uh, for me, I don't know. I think um the the last theologian ethicist that that delved into the uh, practical political world in this way i i would say was reinhold niebuhr i mean um i you know we can't think of anyone else so so i very much have appreciated your work for 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 a long time so so uh i i appreciated this biographical take um here now if if you could put your state department hat back on uh for a second and if there's time, I'll ask you later, why hasn't the Biden administration reestablished the office? But if you, you can think back about your State Department days, um, as as we were in the um, middle of our conversation here, I received an alert. This is a New York Times breaking news alert that a, war, a Russian warplane struck a U.S. drone <gasps> over the Black Sea, forcing it to come down in international waters. This is according to U.S. officials. Um, what do you think is happening right now at the State Department when when situations like this arise? Um, we just happen to have a foreign policy expert on when this happens. <laughs> by the way, yeah, wow. I, okay. I tell you, I tell you, this well, is uh... <laughs> well. Well, first of all, th this is a nightmare scenario that they've thought about from the beginning. Uh, so you know, there've been a couple of, of cruise missiles, Russian cruise missiles, move into NATO countries. And, and crash doing no damage but you know uh, under the the nato agreement maybe article seven i may be wrong on that you know that an attack on one is essentially an attack on, on all uh, so the 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 possibility of, of an accidental attack on a nato country from an errant cruise missile or or tactical nuclear weapon if if, I think that's one of the fears that Putin uses tactical nuclear weapons. These are not always precision guided, or if they're precision guided, they sometimes fail. Um, and, and so I, I think um, my guess is there's been a lot of hard thought given to not to responding immediately to these kinds of scenarios that could be um, could be cata cataclysms or um, that could lead to war. Or so uh, I actually think they've they've thought this through very carefully that they're not going to uh, rattle the sabers and start launching a counterattack based on something like but it does show you the high stakes here when you have um, a nuclear armed country like Russia and and Putin has threatened on several occasions to use those weapons now uh, his his reason still seems to be intact he has not he has not resorted to that because i think he knows that would be the end of russia as we know it if he did use you know if he did attack nato countries with with weapons of mass destruction but but this is shows you the fragility of what's going on and why uh, we need to be the adults at the table here for these kinds of kinds of, of episodes we we're not immediately assuming the worst and we're not immediately preparing to to respond uh in kind or even more with more force in response so actually i, I think these kind of one-off examples are probably less problematic than should putin find himself in a, a more dire situation a year from now where he's losing ground uh and he's being pushed back into russia that's where i think things get really dicey because he could make a 
what we would think to be a crazy decision to use uh, weapons of mass destruction under uh, these kinds of perceived existential threats. So, uh, uh, but but even this kind of one-off, this kind of where one weapon uh, hits another country's uh, of, the, of the, the opponents, obviously that's very sobering and very frightening, but I, that, that's not a surprise given the, the weight and volume of weaponry that's being used right now. And uh, so I, I think the cool heads were well prepared for this. I mean, it'll be interesting to see, but I doubt you're going to see uh, uh, any cruise missiles launched by the United States into Russian territory. I mean, that's right. just unthinkable to me. That Do you think gonna... Biden's probably on the phone now with Putin or are they like, what's the next step? Do they meet? Does the U.N. meet? Like what happens? You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it could be a range of things. It could be our... Uh, Tony Blinken talking to Foreign Minister Lavrov, that, or it might be uh, our UN ambassador, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, talking to the Russian ambassador there. I mean, so th there, are, there are varieties of, of communication points where um, communication is probably going on. I, I, I personally doubt that it's Biden talking to Putin. Now, it may get to that at some point, but my, I'm guessing, given if this account is it's small and just one cruise missile, being shot down by our drone or something. I, I, there was I a similar issue in Syria. Um, and yeah. not to mention, um, didn't Trump like, there was like bounties on Marines or something like that. And Trump knew about, it, it was like one of the Trump scandals squeezed between all the others. <laughs> it was a very quick one, but uh, there were like Russian bounties on US uh, soldiers' heads or something. Yeah, I, I have no memory of that. But, but but this one, I mean, this is pretty. This is pretty stark. I mean, this yeah. one obviously is is kind of out there where every, everybody can see it. But uh, but I would expect cooler heads to prevail here. It uh, seems like it. Most of the major news outlets are reporting that the Russian jet collided with the with the, the drone, the, not yeah. that it attacked yeah. it. Yeah. So it probably is just a, an accident. So. Well, it's maybe, probably all pretty foggy right maybe. now with that fog yeah, of war. Fog, I mean, foggy it, bottom. Yeah. 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 Anyways. Yeah. Uh, Aaron's got the next. Oh, yeah. So, um, well, my question isn't as uh, breaking news as Eli and our <laughs> correspondent in New York. So uh, <laughs> you, 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 make a, you make a pretty clear and I, I think convincing argument that there should be more religiously literate people in the State Department. I mean, if religion informs and, you know, grounds a lot of our values hopes fears dreams then people should be literate about those we shouldn't just push it aside just ignore it um so my question to you is twofold and i guess it kind of gets into eli's uh second question he wants to ask later so i'm sorry eli uh number one where are these jobs now and can i have one um yeah me too <laughs> but, but seriously uh, well, do you see this as a real possibility in the future where we could start, I mean, start seeing maybe religious envoys to other em embassies across the globe and maybe even to places like on Alaska, Washington, where Zach lives? <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, I think I talk about in the book that the perfect person I would have hired was somebody who had studied religion in a particular corner of the world, had lived there, was fluent in the languages, but also knew U.S. foreign policy, which means I would not have hired myself. <laughs> Sorry. What, it's okay. What, what really right. this was about was building the capacity at the embassy level. Mm 
So the, the analogy I like to draw is, is Jimmy Carter with respect to human rights. And when he became president in uh, 1977, he, he dragged the foreign policy apparatus kicking and screaming to the notion that we should normalize and mainstream human rights. And, and the State Department was as, as uh, resistant as, as any part of the bureaucracy. But now we have, we have a huge Bureau of Democracy and Human Rights. It's it, in every embassy does a human rights report every year. So from, you know, over the course of, you know, 40, 50 years, we have now mainstreamed that. My argument was, Having a shiny office on the seventh floor of the State Department is a good start. But ultimately, we would put ourselves out of business if, if assessing religious dynamics and engaging religious actors was interwoven into the DNA of all our foreign service officers as a matter of routine. So I, I don't want to, you know, I, um, so some of my best interpreters, you know, I, so I hired people who, who could meet the criteria I set out for my regional advisors, the State Department carves the world into six different regions. So I had a regional advisor for, for each of those six. Um, and we came alongside the assistant secretaries for those regional bureaus and went in and trained embassy staff on how to do this sort of building religious landscape, assessing the religious dynamics and meeting the, the religious communities and, and leaders. Um, it's just a routine part of their diplomacy because they knew the political terrain, they knew the business terrain, they knew the academic terrain, they knew the civil society terrain. But when it came to religion, it was this great void because nobody had rewarded them for that or given them permission. So, you know, I couldn't ask, you know, gosh, I'm, I'm short a couple of Presbyterians. Could I please have a couple of Presbyterians? <laughs> exactly. It was, it was who, who can help me understand the religious dynamics in these specific places around the world? I wanted people who, so we had, out of the 30, 35 people we had, we had 22 graduate degrees in religion or cognate field. I couldn't ask people, well, how many times did you pray last week? I didn't care. No. It wasn't about their devotion. It wasn't about, we weren't promoting any particular brand of religion because it wasn't about American religion. It was mm -hmm. about understanding the, the places where religious communities had work that had political and diplomatic implications. Now, mm -hmm. some countries that's more important than others. In some countries, it, it really wasn't a thing. So I, I don't want to say every embassy ought to have this religion ambassador because uh, mm -hmm. that, that's making it too big a thing. But, um, and, and plus, I, I, I mean, the, the practical value of that, the practical chance of that happening would have been zero anyway. Mm -hmm. So it was how do you persuade the bureaucracy to incorporate this expert, and it could be incorporated anywhere. And, and so I'm a little, you know, the term religious literacy bugs me a little because, you know, there are people out there who have like the, the 12 question religious literacy test and you scored 10 out of 12, according to the Acme, you know, think tank in Timbuktu, yeah. Texas. I, the State Department's not handing out badges about religious literacy, mm -hmm. but it was how can we equip the institution to either have that capacity somewhere or know where to get it on the outside because religiosity is too complex um, around the world. So the, the notion that a group of 35 could be the world's best experts on lived religion was preposterous on the face of it. Mm -hmm. Now I, I hired smart people who are well-trained and very literate, but each of them knew, they only knew a fraction of, of the whole issue set and even in their own bailiwick. So we, we were really epistemologically quite modest, I think. And we knew who the best conversation partners were around the world to get us smarter. You know, yeah, you, Aaron, you even equated. To, well, 
just just one comment you know aaron just to add to your point i uh before the before i got halfway through the book i immediately searched their department to see are they hiring interns <laughs> well so you know the office does not exist today uh, i i sadly you know, figured that. <laughs> there's an office of international religious freedom which puts out this massive report and they wag a finger every year and criticize the bad guys but that's a very narrow remit it wasn't if you look at all the issues we were involved in none of those fit the remit of the yeah. the office of international religious freedom so we're blind today no, nobody's doing this work and there may be individuals here and there that are smart uh working in the bureaucracy who have who have some avocational expertise but systematically, it, it's not there, and that's that's very very troubling to me. Maybe maybe Eli should just jump in and ask that question about the the Biden admin and why they aren't uh, redoing yes. this today. No, thank you. And 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 um, I mean, certainly, I I wouldn't want to put you in a oh well, well Sean, you, you you're always uh, you 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 say what's on your mind, but I've I think one of my critiques of the uh, Biden administration is. I think a, um, and it's not just at the State Department, uh, but I, but I think there's been a, I don't know if devaluing is the word here, but um, but certainly there's there's no willingness to to engage faith based communities, even to hire folk right that that have a a a lens that can assist right with 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 obviously policy decisions and. But all, but also to 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 be a liaison to these critical pivotal constituencies. So we see, um, and you know this, Sean, very well, that they have not filled any of the faith based office slots in many departments and agencies the way that Obama did. Anyway, and and obviously your the, the office that you helped launch um, still does not exist. So. Why? I mean, I, I, I think you, you, you certainly lay the case as to the importance of of having such an office within the State Department. And interestingly enough, Blinken was in the State Department when Secretary Kerry was there. And in fact, you you mentioned in your book, I think there's there's one engagement that you do mention. So, so obviously, he had to see the uh, the the usefulness of this office. So. Um, any inklings as to why um, the Biden administration has not uh, seen the the, uh, the value to such an office, and and not just at the uh, state at state, but but obviously across across the administration. Well, I I, I can't answer that larger question. Uh, I, I I'll take a stab at its state. So I, I did reach out to senior leaders uh, about a year in. So it was about a year ago, a little over. And, and said, no, really, you, you ought to look at this because there are places around the world and, and Ukraine is one, Ethiopia is another, uh, Afghanistan is one. There, there are multiple countries where religious dynamics are really going to be, I think, uh, pivotal for whatever emerges in, in some of these places. And they they said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll evaluate the question and get back to you in a month. And a month went by and they called me back and said the planet's on fire. They didn't have the staff capacity to really systematically evaluate, which I believe. I, I don't think that was because they, if, if they didn't care, they would have said, we don't care, go away. And, and so they said the answer is no, but there's no for now. Uh, and which tells me it, at some point they might reevaluate the question. Now, I have 
I have dropped a lot of copies of this book in down a lot of chimneys in the, <laughs> in the State Department. I know I miss Christmas, but uh, so I, part, of, part of my hope is that the book will, will help spur a conversation that, that they will evaluate that. We'll see. Uh, you know, we're, we're at the halfway point now. Um, and the, I mean, part of the problem is the world's on fire. You know, I thought the world was complicated in the second Obama term. It's more complicated now. You look at what's going on in Russia. You look at what's going on in, in Ethiopia. You look at what's going on in Nigeria. You look at what's going on in China. I mean, everywhere you look around, um, there are, are really, really tough, tough diplomatic uh, contexts. Um, and they walked in. And the State Department was decimated between Trump and Pompeo. They were below congressionally mandated levels of staff to begin with. So they basically had to rebuild the State Department from the ground up. We're still nominating ambassadors. Uh, that so we've got places that haven't had an ambassador in two years. So uh, they're trying to have to, they're rebuilding the airplane while they're flying. So I, I, they have my sympathy. I completely understand that in some eyes, this office might look like a luxury. But what I've tried to do in part is write them an owner's manual to say this is how you can get back in business fast. You don't have to start from scratch, that there are some some lessons to be learned here. So here they are. And uh, so we'll see. I mean, I, I'm a hopeful person. I, I'm not I'm not a pessimist. I'm not an optimist, but I am hopeful here that the merits that I try to outline in the book about why this work is important and how to do it well um, I hope will will motivate them to give it a second look, and and we'll see. Um, okay, so I got uh, one question, and then we'll each ask one more question, and then wrap it up. Um, so, to preface this, I realize that I'm a hammer looking for a nail. Um, that I want to see everything through kind of a religious framework, but um, it seems like a religious framework for understanding the world is actually quite valuable in diplomacy if the target isn't even religious in the proper sense of the term. Um, religion, especially in the way that Niebuhr uses the term religion, how he critiques other uh, other movements in society, um, religion is kind of a catch-all cross-disciplinary approach that helps us better understand humans in general, even if they are communistic or find themselves within something more akin to an identity cult, as in the cases of Putin or Xi. It seems that religion has a broad application and wisdom for human nature and all human, human interaction could be beneficial for everybody in the State Department to understand more. It, it could be a whole paradigm in, in a way. Um, I'm wondering, like, what, what's your response to that? Like, should every, uh, at Georgetown, where you are, at wherever, anybody where anybody is learning foreign policy, shouldn't religion be a staple of that education and what they're bringing into the positions? I know you're certainly going to say yes here, but I'm going to say no. <laughs> it's simply because the, the world of diplomacy is, is too complicated. And there's no single definition of religion that is, I mean, look at the guild today. You want to start a fight in any religious studies department and say, hey, I have the definitive definition of religion and I'm going to cram it down your throats. I mean, <laughs> I mean, literally, you could destroy, if you got two people in a religious studies department, you can start a fight over that. So I, I'm I'm not I I guess I'm much more modest than that. I, I, there are going to be some diplomatic contexts where a deep 
grasp of religion or religious studies or theology is, is not going to be materially helpful. I mean, that's just, now, there are people, I know people in the, in the religious freedom area who think more religious freedom can solve any diplomatic problem. And those people come off like nuts when the State Department people listen to them talk. And, and so I, I don't want to oversell. And there have been some people in the sort of religion and diplomacy area who've really oversold that religion somehow is going to cure every problem. I don't think that's right. So we we use the term, and I, I have some ambivalence about it. We we often say we, we right-sized religion. Understanding religion in Ukraine and Russia is not going to solve that problem, mm-hmm. but it may lead to deeper understanding. Understanding the prosperity gospel in Ethiopia when the, the party in power is the prosperity party, and you may be in the middle of a slow-motion genocide, that might actually be helpful. That might actually shed light there. Okay. Um, so I, I I never went into an issue set presuming there's a religious angle here somewhere and we just need to elbow our way in to show people how smart we are. There were times people came to us and said, is there a religion angle here? And we scrubbed it and we said, nah, not released, not, not, not sizable enough to justify putting more resources that way. So we had to exercise good old fashioned prudence kind of in the deep, virtuous sense of that term that there were some places i mean i had 35 people at max we had 35 million issues we could work on we said no more often than we said yes because Mm -hmm. i didn't want to dilute our power and so we had to decide oftentimes can we add value and make a difference is this a secretarial priority and and do we have somebody on the ground in that country who's willing to be our partner then we would take a deeper look because uh, there were places where some of those pieces were missing, and I knew we'd just be banging our heads against the wall because we couldn't make any difference or the leadership on the ground didn't see any utility. So I, I just think that's too grandiose. I, I think that- that's fair. But I, I'm I'm curious just to I, I think we might be talking about two subtly different things. So absolutely like the religion in particular of a certain reason or something like that like to know everything about that would boggle the mind but it being the love thy neighbor podcast i'm going to give a shout out to neighbor in that he bring he does offer a very valuable critique to where when we're looking at say the nazis when we're looking at stalinism you aren't just looking at a secular state you're looking at something with with religious dimension to it with a zeal and a fervor, with a certain group of creeds, with uh, with a certain idolatry, even like there's a, there's a certain kind of uh, critique that he adds there right. that can be very helpful. So it, I guess what I'm basically asking is, shouldn't everyone carry Niebuhr around in their head? Is probably uh, maybe what I'm really asking. <laughs> Well, I, may, I guess I would, I would maybe I want to, to rephrase it or take it. I mean, I, I think there are certain Niburian tools or approaches. You know, the the, the big Niburian framework between in, in you know nature and destiny, man, between finitude and the ability of transformation. You know, that we live knowing that America is not going to build a Pax Americana that's going to solve violence in the world. That, that that's a very important insight. Now you don't have to have read Niebuhr to come out there, but that is, I think that is a very important counterbalance to uh, the, the utopians who believe just get out of my way and let me take over. It's a, it's a, a, a nice antidote to authoritarianism, which we see now growing. And I think this is maybe the, the big open issue set 
is how should a liberal democracy that respects religion but disestablishes it, how should we engage the varieties of authoritarianism we're seeing both within our own country but also around the globe? I think right. that's important. And what we're seeing, certainly, and I don't think this is an overstatement, but in a majority of authoritarian governments, there's always a target religion, a targeted religion. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Jews are often at the top of that list, hence the, the rise in global anti-Semitism and the rise in the United States. It's not an accident. Um, but at the same time, then, there often are favored religions where, like, you're on my team, you're on Team Sean, and if the rest of you are smart, you too would join President Sean's team, you know, and, and so... I think part of our hesitance today about religion is missing those kinds of big religious dynamics. But but I think Niebuhr himself, if, if he were to pop up today, I think he would uh, he would realize that uh, Western-based sort of Christian-based analysis is not going to provide deep anal- analytical insight into every case right. around the world today when it comes to, to religion or ideologies that, that govern people. I, I was wondering how far your um, prescription of more religion would go, especially as U.S. interests turn from the Middle East into uh, more perhaps atheistic, but in some ways they're still deeply religious states like in the in the uh, South Pacific. Um, there's it seems like there's still something to be learned there about the religious tendencies of the people and how they're directed. And it's not in a very Western way. In fact, it's um, a very Confucian way uh, of a, of a, a father state um, type of view. There, I think, at least from the government's perspective, it has to be done in terms of diplomatic interest, not just academic or cultural engagement. I mean, I, you know, those are all interesting questions, but if they don't present, uh, you know, specific political consequences, then I don't think the State Department has any, any real mission doing that kind of study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so I want to make sure people, you know, there were people said, oh, he's out there just, you know, he's there to promote American Christianity. <laughs> I was like, no, no, time out, time out. No, no, no. It's not what we're doing. And to the extent religion in some form presents itself as diplomatically relevant, then there's a, a prima facie case for looking at those dynamics and, and asking questions. But if it doesn't present itself, it's again, it's not a it's not a religious graduate study seminar that rolls through a four-year presidential term. It's not that. And we're not for teams, you know, Buddhism or team Presbyterianism. It's not what this is about. But so we didn't promote religion. And if religion disappeared around the globe tomorrow, then there would be no no need for our work. Um my my final question kind of ties into this a little bit. Um, it's you know this is this is a real softball for you. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, it's a bit of a controversial question, I would say. So if you don't, you know, obviously don't want to answer it, don't feel pressured. Um, so I lived in Israel for about three months, and I also for during that time we also lived in the West Bank for uh, about three weeks. And so I, you know I've gotten a a little bit of a feel for the the conflict there. Um, but I was surprised in studying Niebuhr to find out that he had actually had a role in, in advocating for his, for the formation of Israel. And I guess I kind of wanted to give you kind of a broad, open-ended question. But if you have had any time uh, to review kind of Niebuhr's thoughts on the formation of Israel, and that do, do you find him to be a resource in that in that conflict? Because I mean, you you give a ton of information about your time there, and I just, just finding out about how how involved you were in trying to kind of 
and navigate that. Um, do, do you reflect on Niebuhr's advocacy positively or do you have uh, other feelings regarding his advocacy? <laughs> oh, I, I think it's too inchoate. I mean, the, the Niebuhr I have read was more about, okay, let's give him a state. That, that was a good thing that happened. But there are these Palestinian folk over here and they're not going to be happy. Now, okay, I mean, that's just like, you know, you play baseball with this wooden stick and you have this round thing and you play on a, a square. It, 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 it's too inchoate. It, um, I suppose one could go back and sort of try to find an Israel thread, but th that's what I'm aware of. And I, I don't disagree with his analysis, but I, it was really hard. I can't conjure any of his later writings where he said, wow, something that, that really blew me away. And part of that's because... You know, the 67 war sort of changed everything. And uh, and Niebuhr died in, what, 72. So, and he was not, even it's in, in 1967, he was not in his prime. I think he was universally acknowledged to be on, on, the, on the decline. So, uh, not, one again could fall back on what would a Nieburian analysis look like? I, I'm not sure I could, could sort of lay well, that out in five quick points. So, if, if I could ask a follow-up question, maybe, sure. do you think that, Niebuhr has resources that would allow, like, for instance, like American fundamentalism um, to better understand the conflict there. Do you think he, he offers resources that would allow us to uh, better understand the issues at stake? Because it's like, as you would say in your thing, it's far more complicated. You know, that's what I want to tell people. <laughs> Just having lived there, you know, I, it's yeah. very complicated. Well, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, the, the, the issue set is clear. You know, the, the six or seven fundamental issues are, it, there's no real mystery there that those are the ones that have to be sorted at a minimum to, to get to a, a two-state solution. Uh, but now the two-state two -state solution seems to be teetering like it never has. Uh, so it may be not unlike the end of the Cold War. We may find that the traditional framing is just rendered uh, absolutely obsolete by, by facts on the ground. Um yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I, I'd have to think about that hard. I know I'm, it sounds like I'm evading your question. I, I just don't see it. I, I don't see, and, and again, if I thought harder and longer, I might be able to see how some Niburian uh, analysis might help. But you you just got two political leaders there, neither of whom have the room to concede a point or they'll lose, in, in Netanyahu's case, he'll lose his his majority in the Knesset, which is razor thin, and in Abbas's popularity is in the 20s right now among Palestinians. So you, you look at kind of any war game or any kind of case study that shows two weak political leaders having to make decisions that neither of their uh, constituency groups would support. I mean, that's just not a, that's not a formula for successful negotiations. Uh, at least in the short run. So I, I think that it's really hard to see. And then you, you've got people on both sides who want to, who want to actually to blow up any peace process before it gets started. So that's just, you, the deeper you dig in the contemporary situation, the harder it is to see the political strategy emerging. But having said that, I think Martin Indyk told me one time, he said, Sean, you know, sometimes when things have looked absolutely beyond uh, beyond the pale, breakthroughs occur. Uh, so I want to believe Martin, but um, he, and he he certainly is somebody I, I respect and whose knowledge of the of the region is is really unparalleled uh, in the contemporary world. 
but it's tough. It's really tough. All right. So he, here's my question, Sean. I, I guess what, what got me going was this reference here to a, a meeting you were invited to by Senator Ed Markey, right? Yes. Uh-huh. And I smiled as I read it because um, having worked with several elected officials, both as a staffer, but also on the uh, campaign mm-hmm. side, Mm-hmm. You know th- their their reaction to their their, their reaction that that you would describe here is a typical elected official reaction, and and you refer to this meeting around the Pope's uh, Pope Francis's visit right to to DC around the climate change right. issue and his encyclical. Um, so so Franken Al Franken and and Chris Mur- uh, Murphy were. You know they 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 wanted to 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 fight back right away. These Republicans are gonna slam them here, and you're like, well, wait, that, you know, your 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 response was like, yeah, I, a communication strategist would have said exactly that. So so this is where I'm going with my question, um, I, and I think I I knew of your of your in terms of your practical political work. That's how I describe it. I always thought of your work more on the domestic side, right? I mean, you you worked in the Obama campaign and you described that in, in, in the book as well. Um, and obviously in our personal conversations, um, you know, I say, yeah, you know, Sean, Sean has the chops for sure. Uh, but, but, but there's this foreign policy side and, and you describe yourself as a diplomat and, and, and of course that you were. So I'm just wondering, is there one that really gets you going in terms of passion, in terms of what brings out the fire in you? Is it the 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 campaign work on the domestic side or uh, or is it, you know, the uh, the the diplomacy and, and foreign policy end of things? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I think part of this has to do with, you know, I, I tell a story in that biographical chapter about being a paper boy in this small town, but I was throwing a, a city paper. So it was a Louisville, Kentucky paper, which in that era was the Courier Journal. And it, it was an astounding newspaper for its international coverage. So I spent like years 11, 12, and 13, I would read the paper before I wrapped, rolled it and threw it. So, and that was Vietnam, that was civil rights. And so you had these two mega issues being played out every day, literally on TV, but in, in the, in, in print. So I, I couldn't, you know, campaign work is not glamorous. It's boring and it's slow. And it's pondering. Um, and Again, people, not like the West Wing, right? No. <laughs> well, you know, there is that one West Wing episode where they miss the bus and they have to walk back. Okay, it's like that. <laughs> that it's, that's that's more tr- that's truer than than the, the flying on Air Force One, you know. It's much more of the cornfields of Iowa. You're walking, you know, five miles back to the town because you missed the bus. Um, and it's, you know, I did it. I learned so much. Uh, I was 50, I think, when I did that. I was exhausted. I mean, I just into that election. I was say it is a young person's game. Uh, so it looks like if you're over the age of 23. <laughs> Don't don't make a career out of that. Oh my gosh! And 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 diplomacy too. I mean, William Burns has a great book. You should read his book. I mean, he's now uh, head of the CIA, but he was the senior. Uh, I guess he was the uh, undersecretary for for political 
affairs. And so he was like the, the highest ranking diplomat in the Foreign Service. And he talks a lot about how diplomacy is not a glamorous thing. Now, I enjoyed it because I got, you got to meet so many people and I was working for the boss. So that, you know, it's one thing to be way down at the bottom of a campaign totem pole, and, but to work for the Secretary of State is a, a little more fast paced than, than the campaign stuff. I mean, I'm at a point now where I'll do whatever whatever needs to be done. I mean, I, I think uh, the future of American diplomacy is is crucial. But I tell you, if we if the 2024 election goes back to the Republicans, we're, we're in deeper deeper trouble than we could ever imagine. So somebody said, Sean, you can have a, you can have a job on the campaign, or you can have a job in the State Department. Uh, you pick. Uh, if I were to to pick that. I mean, I'm an old man now. I, I don't have a lot of years left. If I had to choose one one more tour, it would probably be on the campaign because I, I think that's that this more critical that we get that one right. Mm-hmm. It will not be more fun than working in the mm-hmm. State Department because it's it's going to be. Uh, I, I mean, I just think 2020 is going to look like a picnic compared to 2024. Mm-hmm. And my hope is the Obama people figure out how to do religion better, but I I don't know where that that's going to end up. So, you know, I, I've, I've, you know I, I often quote that, that Wendell Berry line, I'm living the life given, not the life planned. And um, I guess I'm ready to take what's given if something else is going to be given. I don't think I, I have a plan that anybody's going to buy. I love that. And the fellow Kentuckian, right? Wendell Berry. Yeah. That's right. Oh, man, I said there's another question that popped in my head that I really wanted to ask, but I'm not sure you want to get delve into who you would want to pick for a democratic nominee uh for a presidential candidate if biden stepped aside so i'll go ahead and ask this one instead um much of our conversation has focused on your work within the state department viewing u.s foreign policy in terms of its international and and global uh respects um, and I know we've also had a deeper discussion with close question earlier about the, the subtle critique and differences and definitions of what religion or religiosity consists of. So this question might not be well uh, formed out, so I do apologize. But my question is, you know, if we were to take your approach and maybe look more inwards to the dynamics of American religious life, how would you foresee your role, your former role, if the Biden admin or the Obama people um, got together and decided to, you know, restart the engines of your old program and started dealing with more conspiracy theories in the United States, how would you foresee that shaping, taking shape? And do you think it would be like a useful adventure? Yes and no. I mean, to the extent uh, white Christian nationalism is violent and armed, it, it, it does pose a risk to uh, to uh, the safety of Americans. So to that extent, and I think that's true. I, I do. You know, is it five percent of them? Twenty percent of them? I, I I'm I, I have no idea. Um, my fear is that it becomes sort of a badges and bullets thing, where uh, you know the FBI has done some interesting work post Waco and trying to understand new religious movements in a more sophisticated way. I'm not sure that capacity still exists. It did once upon a time, uh, and you know there's been a lot written about Waco, where uh, it was basically a, a cowboy special agent in charge who really pushed the question that tipped over into violence. And I think that could have been avoided. So sure, it, 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 
there ought to be people in law enforcement agencies, the FBI in particular, that's looking at violent religious groups who has some sense of <clears throat> you should ask questions first and shoot later. Um, but that's not always the, the personnel profile, personality profile I've seen in some of those professional security people. So I, I, have, I have some anxiety there um, that if it's simply a bullets and badges approach that it, it could uh, some opportunities to de-escalate could be missed. Mm-hmm. I'm also troubled by the notion of surveilling religious communities, even they would be they ultra conservative and maybe tending towards some some violent behavior. I'm there's just a part of me that says that's really really not smart mm-hmm. to start to you know start putting agents undercover in those kinds mm-hmm. of communities. Um, so I'm I'm nervous. It's not something I've, I've devoted a lot of time and energy to, but I, I'm edgy and, and insecure about maybe some of the tendencies that are now in law enforcement trying to get a grip on uh, these kinds of communities. And some of these communities are itching for a fight too. So uh, it can be a very toxic brew there. That that uh, my intuitions are that it's 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 tough. You know, it's, it's like Brian Hare said. You know, my my major professor at Harvard about the kind of work I did. He said, it's like brain surgery, maybe necessary, but it can be fatal if not done right. I think that's really true about interacting with religiously motivated uh, violence tending groups. The government engagements probably is necessary, but it could prove fatal if not done well. And so now I'm not a security expert. I have no formula for how to train people to do that or actually engage with these groups but I'm nervous with the sort of knock on the door in the middle of the night strategy. It kind of just seems like just picking what kind of consequences you want. There's no solution to any of this stuff. If you surveil the people, then they get up in arms, but if you don't surveil them, they could be planning something, planning something that you don't do, you know? So you can watch them on social media. I mean, that's, presumably they're on social media. They want people to follow them. And and so I think, you know, at a basic level, if, if they're leaders and people who've espoused violence, theoretically, watching what they do and say is, is on, on the face of it, not necessarily problematic. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, last question, Sean. Now, I don't want you to get a, give away too much because we want we want our audience to buy the book and read it because it yeah. is it is seriously it was a fantastic book. And it got me really interested in this dynamic, especially in the State Department. Um, there's so many implications, applications um, really excited me. Um, so don't give away too much, but there's one, probably one of the most moving parts of the book came in the sixth chapter uh, where you were comforted by a Syrian refugee. Okay. Even saying that out loud is kind of stunning, right? White, white male boomer comforted by female Syrian refugee. Okay. Um, first, can you can you open up just a little bit about that? Again, we want the audience to read it, but can you just open up a little bit about that and kind of what you learned from those types of experiences of being with the refugees? Well, let me say the the book is full of stories. It it is a it, it is a piece of narrative nonfiction. If you could work with me on that on that concept, that I want this was not just a purely academic book for the twelve academic libraries around the country that would buy a book written by Sean Casey. I, I wanted to draw people in because I, I had these amazing stories and experiences. So uh, 
in every chapter, I, I try to illustrate my arguments with with stories of what happened, what didn't happen, what worked, what didn't work. Um, and so it, it is for, it's not for an elite academic audience exclusively, really. I tried to make it accessible. Um, so refugee resettlement is like the one domestic issue the State Department has a huge hand in. The State Department pays for the first 90 to 120 days of a refugee's time in the United States when they come here uh, to, to be resettled. And that gave me a get out of jail free card to travel the country and see. Now, the government doesn't do this work by themselves. They partner with nine implementing agencies and six of the nine are religiously affiliated. So that was my key to go and talk to these groups. And even the ones, the three that are not religiously affiliated do partner with local religious communities to do the actual resettlement uh, of, of folk. And in that era, if you can dial, if you can go back to in 2015, 2016, when Obama uh, increased the number of refugees to over 100,000 each year, a lot of governors were saying really stupid, Islamophobic, xenophobic things about refugees that were completely false. They were Democrats and Republicans, but mainly Republicans. So I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get on a bus and I'm going to go travel. And I, I, I visited six refugee resettlement centers. And the first one was in Jersey city, New Jersey, which is such a fascinating place. I mean, you can literally see Manhattan, but you could, then it's, but it's also Jersey city and it's just happening right there in the, in the, in the square. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we went Two, two things, and then I'll stop. I, I went in and met the, the director who ran the center. It's a church world service uh, center, which is one of the nine implementing partners. And the guy who ran it was Muhammad Muhammad. And he had spent time in, uh, in Northern Africa, actually helping refugees get on the plane and come to different places with the UN. But he had three of his board members there. And this sounds like the beginning of a very bad joke. There was an imam, there was an evangelical pastor, and then there was a rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> all three whose, whose communities were there in central Jersey, all three had driven by one another's house of worship, but they'd never met each other. Wow. Okay. But by their own internal theological deliberations, they all three had said helping refugees get resettled is at the core of our most deeply held theological beliefs. Mm -hmm. So they all three migrated separately to this church world service center. And they were like, Oh, <laughs> you're like a mile and a half down the road. Oh, you're like three quarters of a mile down the road. <laughs> and so I saw a new form of interreligious collaboration going on around refugees. Now that that's basically disappeared because Trump blew up the refugee resettlement process. Now Biden is throwing some more money at it, but all those organizations have fired all their staff and dismantled all their right. resettlement. So they're, they're, they're rebuilding. Uh, so if this capacity emerges again, it will be interesting to see. But the genius thing that the director said, said, you know, we got 20 refugees from seven different countries who want to meet with you. And that's why I came. And just listening to their stories. And now think about this. These are people who are basically working in the greater New York City metropolitan area. And, you know, they're, they're getting, you know, they might be getting $2,000 a month. <laughs> And, and I mean, you just who 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 thought up the idea that you can live with a family anywhere in the greater New York City area on two thousand dollars a month. So, right. so obviously you get thrown into work and you're making minimum wage. Then it is. So the stories of woe I heard were just so overwhelming. 
we're in this hot, crowded room. Uh, and I, I did. I, I, I got um, I, I got very emotionally moved by their stories. And there was this one, I think they were in a Rocky family where the 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 two spouses were were professionals, but they were cleaning offices at night. That that's that's the work they could find. Like one was an engineer, one was an attorney, and this beautiful two and a half, three-year-old daughter who who was just this incandescent presence mm-hmm. in front of these dreary bureaucrats who just walked in. And, and by the end of this meeting, I, I'm just you know, I want to help these people, but I, I've got nothing. There's nothing I, I have it's in my power to do. And then she, the mother turned to me and said, oh, Dr. Casey, don't worry about us. She could see I was visibly upset. She said, don't worry about us. In a year's time, we all know we're going to be in a much better place. And wow. <laughs> here's this woman is comforting me, right? right? I'm sitting there in my, my State Department suit, you know, I'm going to fly back to D.C. and I've got two staffers with me. And I'm just like, oh my God, the, the faith and resilience this woman had shamed me. Um, but her passion transformed, her compassion uh, transformed me to hear, despite uh, what she was working through in, in, in the trying to understand this bizarre North American culture, uh, uh, it, it just really convicted me that uh, the resilience of people who have fled their home because of persecution and come to this crazy place uh, just takes energy uh, and resources that I don't possess. And uh, and I, I'm kind of glad that happened on the first visit because that that, that made me realize I, I was not there to make them happier or I wasn't there to cure uh, their various logistical ills, but I was there to listen, and I think I became a better representative of people who are refugees than I would have. And so, at each of the six, I always met with a group of, of refugees and asked them to tell me their stories. And, and I think that made me a better advocate for for the refugee resettlement process because it changed me. Sean Casey, thank you so much for joining us. What a powerful story. What a powerful book. Um, we recommend everybody to go out and get it. I I think we got our, ours on Amazon. Um, there's an audio book, I think. Uh, Zach got the audio book, right? Um, you going to say something? Oh, I was going to say, there's no audio. I just I just have Alexa read it, read it to me. Oh, you had Alexa read it? Okay, gotcha. We can have Alexa read it. Um, but uh, we strongly encourage all of our listeners to go out and and uh, and pick this up. Very powerful book. Uh, thanks again, Sean. You're welcome. And thanks for you reaching out and enjoyed the questions and enjoyed the discussion. Hope you guys take care. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. I want to thank again our, our guest, uh, Sean Casey and Eli Valentin was back, a crowd favorite. Thank you for coming by, Eli. We need to have you back more often, man. And by the way, we didn't explain this earlier, but there there is a connection between them. That's why we wanted to invite Eli on the show. Um, they knew each other previously. And actually, they actually Eli's the one that set, set us up with Sean. So thanks for that, Eli. Um, and I want to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in. Make sure you like and subscribe. Write us a good review if you're enjoying it. And follow us on Twitter, at LoveThyNeighbor. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.